Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Today, I talked to Nish Acharya, Senior Fellow at the Clinton Foundation. Nish leads Equal Innovation, which advises some of the world's leading universities, governments, foundations, and companies to assist them with innovation, entrepreneurship, and globalization strategies. And that was a mouthful. We talk about all the work that CGI is doing this year, what it was like to bring the quote-unquote band back together, his takeaways from working with President Clinton and Obama, I was hoping, you know, maybe one of them yelled at him or something. How the volley has become mainstream, which has been super exciting and kind of unfamiliar. And he shares some pivotal moments from middle school that defined his identity as an Indian American. And those are, in fact, my favorite kind of stories because, you know, PTSD from middle school. I hope you guys enjoy my interview with Anish Acharya. Your current role, you are a senior fellow, inclusive economic growth, uh, advising the Clinton Foundation on issues of Mm -hmm. inclusive economic recovery and sustainable long-term economic growth. I got that right? That's correct. Okay. What what does that mean in layman's terms? And if you can maybe give an example of one or two projects you've recently worked on that can help understand what that role means. Sure. So I'll give you a little bit of background. So I served in the Clinton administration a long, long time ago. Uh, and my uh, boss, or first boss, was uh, Stephanie Street, who's the executive director of the Clinton Foundation. And so I've stayed close to Stephanie over the years. Uh, last year, uh, out of the pandemic, uh, they were looking to relaunch the Clinton Global Initiative. And, and we're looking some, for some folks to help them really craft each of the different verticals the foundation's working in and come back. And I thought it was uh, a really interesting opportunity. I had been a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress in D.C. I'd been writing for Forbes. Uh, and I kind of felt like, you know, I tried uh, being sort of the you know public influence through those roles. Uh, and this was going to be something this sort of this was the power of convening of the president's networks, that sort of thing. And so joined up. And, you know, what they were really looking for is, you know, how do we define an inclusive economy and what are the t- core issues we need to work on? Uh, to build a more inclusive economy, both in the United States and globally. Uh, and so that's a really big charge. And and so the, the model of the Clinton Global Initiative is a little different than other conferences and events. It's it's everybody makes a commitment. They make an announcement of a program. It's not legally binding, but the idea is you announce in front of your peers that you're going to do something really amazing. Uh, and and uh, and those peers hopefully will be interested either in funding you or working with you or or, or something else. Uh, and so, for example, with Decide Foundation, they made a commitment around their hometown heroes program, and it was a great chance for Mega to attend CGI to to meet donors and and others and, and talk about the work that they're doing really on the on the big stage, right. which was great. Uh, and she got some extra love uh, on the with her video as well, which was wonderful. Um, you know, another good example of something that we do uh, is is in the micro, uh, you know, sort of an international example I'll give for South Asia is there's a as uh, a woman. Uh, and Rima Nanavati, who runs a program called yeah. SEVA, Self-Employed Women's Association, which is in Ahmedabad. 
And she was looking at the fact that they work with about 2 million women around India. And a lot of them have uh, small, their own small businesses that they run, uh, but they are directly affected now by climate change. Uh, and what does that mean? That, you know, in India this summer, it was literally over 100 degrees for about 100 days straight. And so in that weather, you can't have your tea stall outside uh, for most of the day. It's just not possible. Uh, if you're working on a construction site as a day laborer, you can't walk on those beams because uh, they're even hotter. And so a lot of women lost their livelihood. And so she launched a loan program at the Clinton Global Initiative specifically for women who need to transition out of uh, small businesses that were affected by climate change. And that's a lot of, you know, people who are cleaning laundry by the riverbed that's now not there. And there's a lot of those examples. And so Save Us set up this loan fund, uh, which is low interest rate, you know, uh, just enough capital to retrain and do something else. Uh, and what was exciting about the CGI component of it was that um, other people were there said, hey, this is amazing. We need this in the United States. We need this in South Africa. We need this you know, in Europe, because climate change is unfortunately a global right. phenomenon. And so that model, even though it was just launching, everybody got it and said, we need to think about this as well. And so that's really what we try to do with CGI is to say, you know, uh, what are the new models, the new approaches, and really the new voices, uh, although Seva is a well-known group, what are the new voices like a Decide Foundation that we can bring together with the big players and, and see if we can address age-old questions as well as, you know, newer problems that are existing. Okay. So basically you guys, or, or maybe you and in your team, are looking at unique, new, underrepresented programs around the world, I assume. Yeah. And and then bringing a spotlight to them. Right. And then, right. And then potentially s spreading their work into other places. Yeah. And some are big. I mean, some commitments are major organizations like a Rockefeller Foundation, and Dr. Raj Shah, some are, you know, big companies, um, you know, announcing workforce programs. So it could be any sort of organization. I think the key in this world now in 2022 is people don't want to just see Bono on stage or, uh, you know, Fortune 500 company. They want to see something local. They want to see something that has credibility because unfortunately too many of the larger organizations have not fulfilled their commitments. There's just an article in the Times today about climate change commitments that have gone nowhere. And so, I think what we realized is that, you know, you need the the, the big fancy people uh, to draw the crowd, but you need the doers at the local level as well as the global level to, to you know, really uh, talk about what they're doing and what might be the next generation solution. At the end of the day, even if the bigger organizations are doing the work, and, and of course they are, the local ones, the smaller ones will always feel more authentic. And that yeah, goes across right. the board yeah. for most things. Yeah, um, exactly. Like the, the Sai Foundation, shout out to Mega. <laughs> Whenever I go to her events, you know, I hear her talk. It just feels authentic and real. And you kind of, you know where the money yeah. is going. Again, not saying in the bigger organizations you don't. Um, right. It's just a personal feeling, I think, right? And so then how do you find these programs or initiatives? Do you go out there? Do they come to you? And then second part of that mm -hmm. is... What percentage of those programs are in South Asia? Right. So a couple answers to that question in terms of how we find them. Uh, CGI used to be a big deal in its first version from 2005 to 2015. And so organizations really looked at that platform as a place to come and announce their new programs and seek partnerships. Uh, and then when it went away, the assumption was that other groups would pick up the model because it was so successful. 
But it turns out it's actually really time consuming and expensive. Sorry, really quick. Why did it go away? Did you already? Did it you went away because in the uh, 2016 election, Secretary oh. Clinton uh, was concerned about any conflict of interests, that sort of thing. So it went away. Uh, and then when uh, uh, President Trump was elected, it just it made more sense for them not to do it uh, and be sort of, um, you know, sort of in, in the in the background. So the right. Clinton Global Initiative continued and did work in the Caribbean, did some work in the in American South. But uh, the, the big New York meeting went away this year. It came back. OK. Um, and we had about 150 commitments uh, and around several billion dollars that were was announced because people had not found a suitable venue in the interim into which to make these sorts of announcement. So I think, you know, so part of what we did was put the band back together. Right. We went out there and, and got all the people who came to us from 2005 to 2015, said, hey, we're back. Do you have a commitment you want to make? So that was one. Secondly was my personal networks and reaching out and, and saying to a lot of folks, uh, and I've spent a lot of time in the startup space, innovation and entrepreneurship. Right. And a lot of folks who don't consider these big meetings relevant to startups. Uh, but my view was that if you're looking at an issue like climate change, you need the startups in the room with the technology solutions, uh, you know, the climate change technologies alongside the big companies and the big government agencies, because uh, they both will have to work together uh, right. on that. And so I brought a lot from that space as well. Uh, and then the third was word of mouth, people saying, hey, I'm not doing something this year, but there's this other great organization that is, you know, let's connect. So I, I think it was a lot of different ways we we reached out. You know, honestly, I think there was a little bit of trepidation from folks you know, in this day and age of social media, putting yourself out there and making a commitment is uh, is is not the same. There's uh, folks who will uh, attack you for random things. There's, you know, the difficulty of keeping these commitments, um, even if you try your best and on climate change or diversity and equity. It's just these are hard things that folks have struggled with. And so there's there's a lot of trepidation on that on that as well. But we we're able to pull through and get a lot of uh, a lot of wonderful commitments. And I think that'll continue to be the case moving forward. Yeah, it feels like nowadays you can't win at anything, right? No right. matter, no matter what you do, uh, you just have to just do what you're doing and and ignore that noise. Exactly. That must have felt amazing to get the band back together this year after so long. 150 commitments is that a lot? It is. I, I forgot to answer your South Asia question. So, oh yeah, South Asia was actually uh, not as represented as I think any of us would have liked. Okay. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one is. We had a, a skeletal team this year as we were rebuilding it. And so a lot of it was on personal networks. Uh, and so a lot of the South Asia community that was there were uh, through me, um, you know, people I'd worked with in my past life. And and then others who had been involved with the Clinton Global Initiative every year and knew about it. Uh, examples like Rima from Seva had always been involved. She's close friends with Secretary Clinton and, and comes all the time. Right. So th- that was the two groups. I think most of the South Asia commitments were... Actually, I shouldn't say there was most in one category. There was a decent number in education. Uh, okay. And then the second big area was really rural development, access to capital and training and that sort of thing. So overall, commitments-wise, maybe maybe about 5 or 6% were, were India-focused uh, in these sectors. I think one of our main goals next year is to get more Indian organizations uh, to the table, uh, more Indian funders. There's a lot of Indian companies now that do philanthropy and, and how do we engage them. So I right. think there's a lot I'd like to do to build that out. Yeah. Almost in diplomacy, it's called track two diplomacy okay. when the different organizations get together separate from government. And I think CGI is a really good place for that to happen for Indian NGOs, funders to come together with their American counterparts and and think about solutions in education, agriculture or whatever it is. Right. 
Any plans to work with the, the new prime minister of the UK? Uh, I think that'd be great. Uh, yeah. You know, his his uh, wife, their family has a huge foundation, the, the right. Narayan Murthy, Sudamurthy. They do a lot. And so it'd be great to engage uh, the prime minister in this. I'm sure he's kind of busy, but... Uh, slightly. I'm sh- slightly. I'm sure he'll get an invite for the meeting. Uh, and then certainly we'll be reaching out. I'd say reached out to them this year. They didn't really think it was the right place for them. But, you know, hopefully that changes now. Well, if it makes you feel better, I have a a friend who's like really close to him. I'm like, hey, if Richie's not busy this week, does he want to interview? Right. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, he's slightly busy. I'm like, okay. He's got a was, few interviews. Exactly. I was like, you know what? It never hurts to ask. Never, never hurts, hurts to ask. ask. You, never, you never know. You never know. Right, right. In terms of the Clinton Foundation itself, I know there's so many initiatives like, you know, CGI, the Global Citizen Awards, the Health Access Initiative. Okay. In general, are there bigger initiatives that you're focusing on in, in this year or particular years, or is it kind of just what makes sense at the time? The pillars of focus will remain the same, which is okay. inclusive economic growth, right. uh, climate resilience, and health equity. And then we also have uh, a focus on refugees and displaced persons that came out of two factors. One is uh, that President Clinton, Bush, and Obama are uh, involved with a project to, to resettle Afghan refugees. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, the war in Ukraine that sort of led to another refugee crisis. And so that's our sort of quasi fourth pillar. So that is expected to be the same. Okay. Um, and so we will continue to work on those issues. And so it does not really change year to year in that sense. But obviously, these are massive issues, right? There's a ton of stuff. And so, you know, in my case, for building an inclusive economy, we have commitments that are, you know, directly uh, serving uh, families, for example, around, you know, like uh, benefits or or direct giving or something like that. Then there's solutions for, for business around access to capital and workforce training. And then there's, you know, others that are sort of global supply chain. And so, you know, all of that is economic. So to a certain extent, it's kind of, Everything. I think, you know, the focus areas, however, are, are going to be, um, I think the areas where there's the most interest, I should say, are innovation, entrepreneurship for global challenges, uh, access to capital for a broader set of, of people in the world, uh, not just uh, men from Silicon Valley or New York, but to a broader set. Uh, and then the third is really, uh, you know, looking at workforce and, and not just workforce and sort of the future of work, but also all these new technologies coming out and how do we actually take advantage of them and, and create jobs and that sort of thing? How involved are, you know, President Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton um, and, and Chelsea in the foundation? Or are they just kind of on the board? No, they're they're quite involved. Okay. Obviously, they're older now. Um, right. And President's had some health problems, which he's he's fortunately in good shape. But uh, they were very involved in terms of setting the strategy, okay. you know, defining the pillars. I think they are constantly involved in evaluating the course we're on. Uh, you know, at the meeting, they were there for all three days and very engaged. Uh, Chelsea Clinton is quite involved throughout the year, right. other events. Uh, her big focus is public health. So she does a lot more with my uh, health equity colleagues. Um, but uh, Secretary Clinton is is quite involved on the inclusive economic growth side. Uh, and then President Clinton as well. They've been involved. I think they'll be more involved this upcoming year because I think the meeting was able to come together and be so successful. And I think we were all pleasantly surprised how well it was received, um, you know, in this global community. And so I I think that really energized them. And, you know, it's one of the focus areas of the foundation for sure moving forward. Right. And yeah, I mean, you guys had no idea, you know, what the response would be, right? It's kind of like a blank slate after a couple of years. Not only that, I mean, you know, it's 2022. If you have 3 million followers on Twitter, why do you need a conference stage? And 
that's sort of the conventional wisdom, but it turns out that people still really like the conference stage. They and love they the like, conference stage. I think, yeah. I think they might even, I feel like people might appreciate it more because of social media exactly. uh, just being drained from it. Yes. You know, and, yes. and not and understanding that at the end of the day, it's, you know, these conferences and real life interactions, you can't really compete with that um, at the end of the day. So, yeah, yeah. You posted something recently. It was an article on LinkedIn talking about what organizations today are doing to face global challenges and, if- and that you found that early stage entrepreneurs are kind of leading the change. But yeah. these entrepreneurs, you know, need to be in the same room as heads of states, investors, philanthropists, uh, rock stars, I think you mentioned. How does that happen? Who's responsible for doing this? And then what yeah. is the foundation doing for that, for, for entrepreneurs like that? Right. It's literally almost a physical act of pulling people from different rooms. The The, the framing statistic I use is uh, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals are these 17 goals that are really big, audacious goals to end poverty, create gender equity, educate kids, you know, all that by 2030. And they were deliberately set to be extraordinarily ambitious. And the data shows that if we have any chance of meeting that, uh, there's only two ways we can do it. One uh, is we're facing a $2.5 trillion shortfall every year to achieve those SDGs. So either we get a lot more money, which looks very difficult right now, given we're coming out of COVID, where governments spent about two, three trillion in stimulus already just to keep our, you know, the world afloat. Uh, and then obviously we're in, in, in more difficult economic times right now. So the idea right. we're going to find 2.5 trillion is unlikely. The other is innovation that really uh, is our better solutions and more importantly drives down the cost of an intervention and a solution to the point where it's scalable worldwide, which is something that's sort of the mantra in India with a lot of the social development projects is, you know, if you're working in India, who cares if you're working in three schools with 400 kids? Like there's 120 million kids, school-age kids. And so, right. you know, the m- mantra has always been, how do you think about scaling this? Scaling and and sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But I think globally we're seeing the same now. People are saying, well, we're going to have to figure out how to, you know, uh, do something, you know, uh, carbon capture or, or uh, you know, use AI to track emissions or something. And we're going to have to do it globally and at a really low cost so everybody adopts it. And that's where the innovators and entrepreneurs are. That's what they're doing. Right. Um, and right now, actually, if you go to universities, if you go to startup accelerators in Silicon Valley or really anywhere, about 20, per, 20 to 30 percent of the startups are working on these issues related to the SDGs. In fact, wow. uh, some research I was involved with uh, before uh, showed that, you know, roughly when you when you throw all these categories together of climate change, education, global health, diversity, equity, it, it's anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of the startups uh, coming out of the best programs, the Y Combinators, the Techstars, others. Right. These are Stanford or Harvard. These are um, focused on these sort of global challenges. And so there's a lot of innovation in that space. Right. But on the other hand, in the, in, uh, in the main plenary room at Clinton Global Initiative were all these big organizations uh, and they were talking about these big ideas, but no technology that's actually going to achieve them. And so, uh, you know, we had big ideas, but then the execution isn't really there. The execution is the same. And and the same is true with a lot of other groups. XPRIZE is something I've been involved with, and they have the same challenge of these really big goals. uh, And then where do you find the solutions and how do you, uh, you know, sort of temper expectations in the the short term? Where are the operators? Exactly. Exactly. Right. right. So, So we had a entrepreneurship track at CGI this year called 
greenhouse and 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 my vision was physically to drag people from the two rooms so they talk to each other and say hey these are our cop 26 climate commitments this is the technology that works on that you guys figure it out in real life in real life that that's the way it works for sure the clinton foundation itself obviously we know everyone has heard of it people love it people have their opinion opinions on it you've been working there for a while now so if you could kind of share in your own personal journey there, what has been the biggest fire you've had to like let out or issues that you had to face that you were surprised about? And then what are you most proud of? So actually didn't have any fires we needed okay. to put out this year. I think there's a uh, a group of people who um, have their own opinions about the Clinton Foundation and CGI. Right. Uh, we didn't really, you know, they obviously don't call us to make commitments at the meeting. So uh, I didn't necessarily have to, to to deal with with any of that stuff, which was great. I think the uh, what we actually found was the opposite, which is that even amongst folks who are taking maybe a more uh, conservative approach to social challenges, maybe they want to cut taxes or want more right. private charity or something than than maybe what President Clinton did as as president. Even they see the value in CGI as a meeting an entity to bring together public-private partnerships. And I think to that end, I think, you know, Washington is so polarized uh, that it's hard for private organizations, whether they're philanthropy or companies to and NGOs to talk with activists and advocates and, and all that. It's a very polarized setting, whereas CGI, right. I think everybody sort of has this attitude that, you know, not everybody's perfect, but, you know, uh, you know, a company's here, they're working on this issue. And there's NGOs here working on it. There's governments. And where we agree, let's come together to uh, to do something. And, you know, with the understanding that we don't agree on on practices, uh, uh, you know, on everything that each of us do. And so I think that was a pleasant surprise as we were putting it together. The thing I'm most proud of, I think, is that we really developed an expansive vision of an inclusive economy and got a lot of buy-in for that. So you know, some of the things I mentioned earlier, but we were really looking at this idea of new approaches, new voices and new models. Right. But also, you know, in this day and age, people are excluded from the economy because they were in because of COVID and, you know, changes in transportation or hospitality. Right. Uh, the the you know, climate change uh, is changing. You know, people might have to move from Miami or or California because of wildfires. And so those are people excluded all of a sudden from the economy. And then automation is something that continues and will continue to be an issue. And how do we think about all of these three changes uh, as being part of building an inclusive economy alongside, you know, addressing communities that have been left out historically, whether it's people of color or women, uh, rural Americans, rural Indians, um, right. you know, any, anybody like that. So I think defining the, the, the vision broadly and then building around it was probably the thing I'm, I'm most was proud happy of. about. That's exciting. I actually had interviewed um, the authors who get the Metta a couple weeks ago. He wrote an article for India Independence Day, 75th uh, anniversary. And he was saying the three biggest challenges India's going to be facing in the next five years is going to, one is the main one is going to be climate change. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. fact that people aren't going to be able to live in areas in India anymore. Mm-hmm. We're not realizing how serious this is. You know, we yeah. know, but we yeah. don't know, right? We don't know. And the data is not clear. That, that's the Miami question, right? Some people right. say half the city is going to be underwater. Other people right. say, no, nah, it'll just be a 5 10%. On our view, 10% of the people have to move. That's still a big deal. That's a huge deal. All, all the schools, all the jobs, everything else. And so we still have to think about it. 
Uh, even I'm in Boston and one third of the city could be underwater. Maybe it won't be, but, uh, you know, you can't plan not in the assumption that, it, you know, nothing's going to happen. Right, right. feels like the whole world is burning at this point. Um, <laughs> well, congrats on all the fantastic work you're doing with the foundation. Thank you I'd like very to much. ask a little bit more about you personally. Yeah, definitely. So I think you mentioned Boston. Is mm-hmm. that where you grew up? That is where I grew up. And then okay. I left and came back. Okay. So typical Guju Indian household, parents strict. Did they right. want you to be the doctor, lawyer, engineer, marry an Indian girl mm-hmm. kind of thing? Yep. How did yep. you grow up? So I grew up, uh, my parents came in the 60s. Okay. Uh, my dad actually came for grad school before most of the Indians came. Um, so he's not in the tech space or, or medicine. He's same same old, with my dad. Old school engineer, right? Yeah. So, 67. Um, 66 yeah. or 67, yeah. So my dad came 62 and my mom okay. came 68. Um, okay. So we grew up, yeah, he worked in industry. Uh, I grew up in a very nice town, uh, Wayland, Massachusetts, a very nice suburb with good schools. I actually moved back there uh, when I decided to raise my own uh, family. It's funny uh, how that happens, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is. You don't think of like Indian immigrants as townies, but that's yeah. exactly what we are. Yeah. Um, and um, I had a great upbringing. I have nothing to complain about. Good, good, strong family, very close social networks. Um, parents were involved in it. Indian American community quite a bit. And so, okay. again, that's how I knew Mega's family and right. her parents and all of that. And so uh, very active. They did want me to be a scientist and, and an engineer. They were okay. woefully confused and 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 worried when I said I'm actually taking an internship at the White House uh, and it's going to start unpaid. But well, uh, it's the White House. Oh, starting unpaid. Yeah, that could hurt. Started, yeah, <laughs> okay. I mean, these are Indian American parents. Yes, so, yes, yes. Uh, you know, what was interesting is... Um, there's a group of only about 10 of us who, in 1995 who were in Washington and and Indian American parents associated American politics with Indian politics, which yeah. is corrupt and dirty and, you know, problematic and dangerous. And so people were saying, what are you doing in Washington? Isn't it the same? Yeah. Uh, and so while they knew the White House was an amazing opportunity, they weren't quite sure if it was the best thing. Uh, right. And also, what are the career paths? You know, if you're an engineer, you know the career path. If you're a doctor, you know the path. What is right. uh, what does an intern become? Right. Um, and so while my parents were very supportive, they were very nervous. Um, yes. and, uh, and but it, it worked out. And uh, and I You're did like, marry don't Nick. worry, I'm, I'm not going to end up selling drugs on the street, guys. It's <laughs> exactly. fine. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I did end up marrying an Indian American woman who's also Gujarati. We were okay. both uh, involved in the network of Indian professionals. And okay. yeah. uh, uh, NetUp, if you remember, right? NetUp in yeah. Boston, it was NetSAP, Network of Net Indian Professionals. Yeah. And so, yeah. Uh, we were both involved in that. She was actually the national president. So we, oh, nice. Yeah, we were. You, so you, you married up. You married up. I married up. I married my <laughs> boss. Exactly. Yeah. So, and then when we came back to Boston, we decided uh, somewhat by accident that we'd uh, move back to to Wayland. Uh, but our our kids are very happy there. Our, our my wife is happy there, and so it, it made a lot of sense. Uh, Boston's not physically that big, so it's, right. it's a big city, but it's. Uh, you know, being in the suburbs is not like being in the New York suburbs where you're two hours in and out. It's it's a lot right, easier. So, right. Yeah, so yeah, we yeah. appreciate that part of it. I just experienced the the New York suburbs called Connecticut. So Right, right. And then growing up, what was your relationship with being Indian? Like, did you embrace it? I don't like the word term A, B, C, D. I think it's That's just it. ridiculous. I don't think any of us are really confused. Um, but uh, did you embrace it? Were you always proud of it? Yeah. And how has that changed over the years? I feel like I was always proud of it. I feel like there was not necessarily anybody to be proud of it to um, right. until we got older. I think probably you had a similar experience to me, though. You got to college and you were like, oh, wow, I'm, you know, all these people had the same experience. I mean, we had a lot of 
Indian American friends growing up, but you know, they were my parents' friends or family you know, friends. You see them yeah. on weekends and at events and or a Monday. Or, yeah, know. exactly. Exactly. Right. So when you get to college, you sort of say, Wow, I actually haven't these are the ones I have stuff in common with. These are the ones, you know, in politics or what have you. And 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 that it, you know, like a lot of folks, you participate in the South Asian Association and you make friends that way, you know, you meet girls, all that stuff. And so I had a very similar experience to that. I, I think I was always very um proud of it, but I was not very, uh, I was not a participatory Indian per se in school. Let's put it that way. I yeah. felt like I was, you know, wearing Indian clothes in Diwali or anything like that, which I, think I understand. that was harder back then. I don't it think was it was yeah. really something we even thought about. It was, I, I just wrote this small little piece in my, uh, uh, uh in my Substack saying, talking about how Diwali has gone mainstream, <laughs> which is very exciting. I, I think to yeah. us as Gen Xers, I'm assuming you're a Gen Xer. Yeah. Um, but it's also very, I don't want to say odd, but it was, it's very unfamiliar. Like, oh, is. wow, this yeah. is so, it's cool. Yeah. It's just like, there's the volley parties at the White House now. And yeah. it's great. It's just, well, it's a whole yeah, different front, thing. Yeah. I, so my last year working for President Clinton, I actually wrote the first Diwali proclamation. Did you? Uh, and that was literally the like three of us working there were like, there's proclamations for everything. Like, why aren't we doing the Diwali one? We sort of pushed through some donors helped, you know, uh, get some outside attention on it. And, and President Clinton did a like a two paragraph proclamation. And then to his credit, President Bush continued it, kept going with it. And then President Obama made it into an event. But at the time, it was literally everyone's like, what's Diwali? Like, why are we doing a proclamation about this holiday I'm like, because a billion people celebrated. So, That's amazing. But at the time, it was, you know, nobody knew about it. A lot of Indians in D.C. said, you're wasting your time. Like, who cares about the proclamation? Um, what was the, what was the purpose of it besides spreading awareness? Um, I think that it was twofold. One was uh, spreading awareness, but the other was just, you know, we are a community in the United States, just like everybody else. And if you're going to recognize Columbus Day or Cinco de Mayo or anything else, you know, this is recognize our thing. It. Uh, right. This is one of our things. Let's do a proclamation. So, um, you know, let's just get it done. And that was what I had the the influence to work on at the time. Uh, and so, you know, we did our best around. And that was also 2000. And that was a year also Indian Americans had given a lot of money uh, to both political parties. And so we were a little bit coming of age um, in that sense. Right. Man, Nish, you're the OG. I interviewed uh, Cal Penn this summer yeah. and he was mm -hmm. talking about how he was part of planning the first Diwali yeah. par party at the White House. And right. so... I've talked, I've spoken to the two OGs. It's, this is really yeah, it's cool. Funny. I'm not that old. I'm only 48. But uh, because I worked in the Clinton administration in 95, I often am the OG. I had somebody ask me about a Lifetime Achievement Award uh, like two <laughs> years ago. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm way too young for anything like yes, that. Yes, you are very, <laughs> very young. But yeah, OG meaning you were one of the first, well, the first uh, yeah. uh, Indian Americans in the in the White House, correct? Yeah, uh, that's Working correct. in the White House. So that is, mm -hmm. that is pretty OG, so... Not age-wise, though, I promise. Right, exactly. No, no, I, I'm something <laughs> very proud of that. The Diwali Proclamation definitely goes in the, you know, top five life achievements just because of the significance and, and what it's become in terms of a big event. I mean, I think the, right. the vice president had an event, the right. White House had an event, you know, New York City, it's now holiday. Like, I mean, uh, the proclamation didn't have anything to do per se with, with any of these things, but it was part of the journey we all went through where this is becoming mainstream. It was an opener, right? Right. So it was definitely something. Um, can you recall any stories from middle school, high school time that defined who you are as an Indian American, you know, good or bad? Yeah. So I got 
two Yay! bookend stories. That's awesome. Two bookend stories about my own growth as a person. Okay. Um, the first is uh, I actually had a middle school principal who had been in the Peace Corps in India. And okay. he had been in Gujarat, actually. Okay. So my parents went to like the fifth grade night when sixth graders get uh, transition and they were speaking Gujarati to each other. And so the first day of school, that principal comes up to me and starts speaking to me in Gujarati in front of my friends. I mean, nothing could be more frightening and horrific right. than that. Right, and so right. I, I, I mumbled something about not understanding and, and ran away um, and always felt bad about it. Still do, obviously. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I was just it was awkward and I wasn't sure who I was at that point. Uh, but in eighth grade, we did a trip to Washington, D.C., and uh, through some connections, I was able to get a group of us to the Indian embassy. Okay. And I was still nervous. I was like, we should go to the Swiss embassy and get chocolate, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, why are we going to India? Nobody wants to eat samosas. Uh, and, uh, you know, but but my teacher sort of encouraged me. And so we did it. And um, and I was still nervous. It still felt awkward. Uh, I'm not an Indian. I'm an American. And I was nervous about that. But it was really a powerful meeting because this yeah. was the mid-80s. Uh, and a lot of kids were wondering why India sides with the Soviets versus, you know, uh, America. And, you know, where is India? Is it poor? All this stuff, you know, it wasn't, wasn't like now. And so, uh, you know, came out of that like, wow, this is pretty amazing. And actually, I think it, it certainly influenced my career path to have, you know, spent some time there and, and thought about these issues. So for me, you know, I had that journey. I just had some real sort of memorable, uh, you know, events related to my sort of personal growth that way. That's awesome and and amazing at eighth grade, honestly. I mean, I, I remember myself at eighth grade. I didn't have any courage. I wouldn't have any courage to do that. You know, I was always I don't know worried about either. being the other. <laughs> well, at least maybe even if you didn't, yeah, you, you had the right mentor, teacher, yes, whoever it was yes. to kind of support that. And I don't know if I ever did or maybe I didn't look for it. I have no idea, but that definitely didn't find the courage to embrace being Indian until college. Right. I was, I you know, like you loved India being Indian, yeah, but it was yeah. kind of separate from my day to day right, uh, kind right, of thing. Exactly. And so yeah. that's great. I like that story. It's good. And then so you worked in the Clinton uh, administration and the Obama administration. Right. Can you maybe share your personal takeaways take uh, working in each of those administrations and how similar or maybe very different they were? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, I think, you know, start with they're both very just brilliant men um, right. who uh, could see things at a level that I think very few people can see. And that's probably why they're they're president. You know, I did think you they act, can get see. Did you interact with both presidents yes, a lot? Yes, I did. I, okay. I, not a lot. Not a lot. The way, you know, the White House is set up that there's a core group of aides that right. see them a lot. And then there's there's others who do other tasks. And, and in particular, as you get older, I think, um, you know, and I had... When I served in the Obama administration, my my both my sons had been born. And so I did not want to do 23 hours a day, seven days a week. It just wasn't, right. you know, I wasn't going to do that. I was happy doing 80 hours a week, but I wanted to go home at night and have at least one weekend day with my family. Of course. Uh, which didn't really work out, but that was the goal. Uh, and so it's, you're, you're distant a little bit. Right. Um, but I did certainly spend enough meeting time with both to see their work style. So I, I would start with that. They're, they're both incredible uh, leaders with the ability to see things at a sort of 64,000 foot level that just the rest of us don't right. get to see. Even now with President Clinton is talking about, you know, Ukraine or, you know, global developments. Like he's just, you know, there's insights there where I'm like, I did not even think. Yeah. Like, like how did he think of this? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. So, so that's one. 
I think at a staffing level, both had different styles of, of management. I, I, sometimes it's hard to, to comment because I was young in the Clinton administration, a very junior, and then went in as senior role uh, 12 years later in the Obama administration. And so it's, it's hard to characterize the two. But I think right. uh, President Clinton, you know, was able to get a lot of talent that had not been in Washington for 12 years prior, people he had known for 30 years. And they had a whole group that just worked on a lot of stuff together. Uh, and have stayed close throughout their lives. And so it was a little bit more, I would say, decentralized because there's a lot of people he knew well working right. in senior roles. The Obama model was a lot more um, hierarchical, again, not in a bad way, just, you know, much more process oriented about um, uh, about everything. Uh, okay. and, uh, and, and, and so if you wanted to do something, you know, I was director of innovation entrepreneurship. If I wanted to launch a new program, there was definitely sort of a you know, up the chain and down the chain, more of a corporate uh, type of hierarchy there to, to get things done. Um, and, and that's because I think President Obama came in during the recession and really wanted to focus on a, a right. couple of things, you know, rather than sort of uh, try to touch upon everything. And he, you know, he had a different, different networks. A lot of folks didn't come in to government from his networks. And so it was a different a need for a different model. Is there anything that either of them said to you personally that you still kind of hold on to? Um, that's a great question. I would say for President Clinton, there's actually something he did after he was president. Uh, I used to run a, a family foundation in the Boston area called the Dishbande Foundation. Yeah. And uh, we went to the Clinton Global Initiative to talk about a school lunch program in India we were involved with called the Akshay Patra Foundation. Yeah. And, you know, we had started their U.S. office and funded it and we're raising money from Indian Americans and that sort of thing. And it was actually going well, but President Clinton heard about it. We talked about it at CGI. He went and visited it, the program in India. And, you know, he got up there at one point and said, this is one of the most amazing programs the Clinton Foundation has ever been involved with. And that was a game changer. I right. mean, and, and it just helped raise money, awareness. A lot of people who sat up and said, oh, I knew this was nice, but if the president of the United States has talked about it, this is must be special. It's like, a, it's, so, like, it's like the hardcore validation that you it's need. It's hardcore validation. Yes, yes. Uh, and, you know, and he knows he knows that comes with his remarks. Uh, he right. doesn't do it in an off end manner. Uh, and so that was the moment that will always stick with me, even though it wasn't personal. It was like kind of watching was. him on stage do that and, and seeing the, the shift uh, was amazing. And then with President Obama, uh, again, I think it wasn't uh, something directed at me, but he in one of my first months there, you know, he gave a speech about the importance of entrepreneurship to the American economy. And that was the first time an American president had really talked about startups and entrepreneurs, you know, before that was kind of like a corner of the economy. And right. Obama's really the one who said, no, this is where the job growth is coming from. And we need to talk about it if we're coming out of the Great Recession. So right. very different and very important. So I, I'd say those were the two. There, there was no time when, uh, uh, they made fun of me personally or, <laughs> you know, chewed me out in a meeting. There was there was nothing like that. I, I was um, hoping one of them chewed you out. I'm kidding. <laughs> there, I, there was a che I was chewed out for not knowing how to use the phones when I was 21 and starting at the White House. But, you know, that's, that seems like it could be complicated. Depends on the phone. It is. There's secure lines, non-secure yeah, lines. And, yeah. Uh, you know. That's understandable. I, I think you're allowed to have PTSD from that. Exactly. That's a, that's a right. little bit. Little that's bit. all right. Um, okay, we're going to do a quick, fast round. Okay. Whatever comes to your mind. Who would be your dream collaboration? Uh, uh, Bono, because I'm a big U2 fan, and he's doing amazing work. Doing amazing work. Are they going to ever come back on tour? 
Do we know? I'm sure there will, because people like us pay ridiculous money to see yeah. them. And I mean, so I just sure paid, I don't know how much money to see Erasure next year. So, yeah. 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 And New Order and Pet Shop Boys. Right. Exactly. Yep. yep. I'll do it. I don't care. What do you want to be known for at the end of your career? Um, well, hopefully there's a lot left. But I, I think if if I can, if people can look at me and say, this is a guy who helped connect the innovation space with addressing global challenges uh, and really thinking about the role of innovation and entrepreneurs in in these big problems of global health or climate change, uh, and really made people think about how to, you know, connect the dots. Uh, that's something I'd be very proud of. And so that's taking what I do now to the next level. And then uh, this is sort of separate, but more important, which is, you know, good father, good husband, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. Is there any story? How old are your kids? 14 and 10. 14 and 10. Is there any stories that about you personally that you can't tell your kids now because of their age, but can tell them when they're adults and you're dying to tell them? Yeah, I, um, I think. Um, and this can involve like, you know, heavy drinking nights, whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was actually a joke at my wedding. So I'm comfortable telling this story that, um, you know, prior to getting married, uh, I was working at the White House and there were not a lot of Indian Americans there. And so it was a very solid pickup line during my single days uh, <laughs> running around the East Coast uh, to say, hi, I work for the president. And so uh, that is the story that I tell my uh, my wife knows. It's, it was a joke in our wedding. And one day I'll tell my kids when when they're interested in girls, which will hopefully be not for a few years. For my I, I feel like that might happen. That might happen to you sooner than you think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And by the way, Nish, if you didn't use that line, I'd be very disappointed. So, right, exactly. That's, like, that's, how could you not? It's like a low-hanging yeah. fruit right there. Right. Yeah. And for people in Washington, that's not even the worst. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's okay. I think you did okay. All right. And then finally, are your parents proud of what you've done? Oh, very much so. Okay. Um, very much so. I think my dad finds it a little humorous that I, who studied political science and economics, uh, was head of innovation uh, because he's a PhD in geophysics. And right. He did, he's like, what is this? Um, <laughs> but uh, they are very proud, uh, not just of uh, of the, the political work, but I think just the community engagement, the work in India that I've done. So they've, uh, you know, come a long way in that. And, uh, and now, as we know, there's just so many Indian Americans working in politics. And oftentimes, right. you know, everybody who's a family friend will call and say, hey, you know, talk to Nish if you want to go to D.C., if you're interested in you know, something or the other. So I, I think they're pretty proud of it. I'm just going to call you, call, say, call the OG if you want to go to DC. <laughs> and so that's awesome. Thank you so much, Nish. Nish, you are definitely the OG of the White House, the volley parties. I'm just going to call it. I'm going to send you actually like a belt that says that. So congrats on that. And of course, all the fantastic work that you're doing. Guys, you can, of course, follow the Clinton Foundation, their website, clintonfoundation.org. I'm sure they are on all social media. And happy Diwali to everyone. I believe today is the fifth day of Diwali, if I got that right which is known as Bai Beach. It's the day that brothers and sisters celebrate the fact that, you know, they didn't kill each other. So, happy Bai Beach to my big brother. Love you, bro. I know we don't say it in person, so, you know, I'll just record it and say it. All right, guys, thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. 
This is Tuckered Out. 